You may know this, many of you probably don't know this, but this past week, actually uh, two days ago, I had the privilege of officiating the wedding of a former student of mine uh, when I was doing student ministry in Scottsdale, and it was a, it was a great opportunity to officiate uh, Justin and Holly's wedding. Justin is, uh, goes down infamously in my ministry history as being the only student in my 22 years of student ministry to ever be kicked off of a mission team. And uh, so Justin and I have had quite a, we, had, we've had, we have a great relationship today, but, but when he was booted off the team, he looks at me and he says, you can't do that. And I looked back at him and I said, I just did. And uh, so we laughed about that, and it was a great celebration at this wedding to, uh, to see him, to see many old friends, and, and it was an event that was filled with tears, it was filled with laughter, it was filled with joy, and more importantly, it was filled with Jesus Christ and his amazing work in the midst of, of people's lives there. And so when I'm asked to officiate uh, a wedding, when I talk to the couple and, and I agree to it, I also ask them to make a commitment that they will participate in premarital counseling. I think it's important to, to get to, first off for me, to get to know them a little bit better, but also to talk about different issues that could arise in their, in their, in their marriage. And we talk about future goals, we talk about family of upbringing, because the reality is this, those of us that are married know this, that, that you think that you're just marrying one person, but you're actually marrying their entire family. And no offense, but there are issues that come with that, right? So, um, so we know that to be true. But there's one particular session that I enjoy more than the others, and it's because it brings issues to the fore, and it ties in perfectly to what we're talking about today. It's the issue of expectations, I asked the I asked the couple to to write a list to write down a list of what they expect of the other person, and then I also asked them to write down the following list: what you think the other person expects of you, because oftentimes we think that somebody expects something of us that's not true at all, and so when we come to find that out in in this premarital counseling, what ends up happening is it sort of brings about an opportunity to discuss why that's such an issue for that particular person. Expectations are real. Expectations taint, what, taint how we go into particular situations at times. But when there is an expectation that is not communicated, it can cause great strife. It can cause great disagreement. And frankly, it can cause great harm. And so this morning, we're going to talk about expectations because when we're talking about, about Jesus Christ and what he's doing, and believe it or not, Jesus Christ, I believe, is, is involved in, in, in throughout Scripture. He's part of the triune God. So he's involved in everything that's going on. And as we look at this passage in Joshua chapter 10, what we need to know is this, is that there are some expectations that happen along the way that we see perfectly illustrated for us in Joshua chapter 10. One of the things that I've observed over time is this, is that when a person comes to know Jesus Christ, there at times is an expectation that from that point on, everything's going to be smooth sailing for them as they live out their lives. But then what ends up happening is they hit a rough spot, and that leads to another rough spot, and eventually they get to a place of saying, wait a second, I thought when I came to know Christ, everything was going to be fantastic and it was going to be smooth sailing. 
we need to remember that Jesus Christ, when he came into this world, did not come in a bubble and stay in a bubble where he was immune to what was going on around him. Jesus Christ entered into a fallen world with fallen people. And in the midst of that, he gave them hope. He gave them a courageous hope. He knew what he was getting into. He expected what came his way. And because he expected it, he was able to not only deal with it, he was able to help other people see courageous hope. And so I invite you to turning your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. And we're going to talk about some expectations that pop out of this at us as we go through this. Because life is full of battles and we need courage for those battles. Turn to John chapter t- uh, Joshua 10 in your Bibles or scroll there on your smartphone. Or if you're using the Bible that's in the rack in front of you, it's on page 185. And we pick it up at verse 1. Now Adonai Zadok king of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king and that the people of Gideon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies he and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city like one of the royal cities it was larger than a than Ai and all its men were good fighters so Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hohem, king of Hebron, Pizram, king sorry, of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. Yahweh said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. Yahweh threw threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going to Beth to Bet Haran and cut them down all the way to Ezekiah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Bet Haran to Ezekiah, Yahweh hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day Yahweh gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to Yahweh in the presence of Israel, Sun stands still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Ihalon. So the sun stood still, the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when Yahweh listened to a human being. Surely Yahweh was fighting for Israel. 
Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Father, we pray now as we come to this time of looking at your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to each and every one of us, that your Holy Spirit would open our ears so that we can hear the importance of having courage for the battle, that you would open our minds so that we can understand what it means to have courage for the battle, that you would open our eyes that we can see you at work when you provide courage for the battle. And that you would open our hearts, that we would be transformed as you give us courage for the battles that we face each and every day. Father, we would ask that you would continue to guide us, continue to give us a courageous hope, one that looks to you first and foremost. And that, Lord Jesus, you would be lifted up in this time and that you would be the one who receives all glory. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So as we open in Joshua chapter 10, you'll notice this. Last week we, we stopped at, I, I think it was Joshua 7, I think, is where we were. Is that right? We'll just say yes. No, we'll say 8. So there we go. So we stopped at 8. There we go. How bad is that? It's one th- I, ex- I expect you guys to forget every now and then, but when I forget, this is embarrassing, you know. So, but, but so we stopped there. What's happened since chapter 8 is this, is that, is that Joshua and the Israelites went with God's presence and they, and they conquered Ai. But in the process of that, Joshua 9, what ends up happening is this group of people called the Gibeonites see what's going on. And they see that wherever the people of Israel are going, they are winning. So the Gibeonites devise a plan and they deceive the Israelites. They deceive them completely. It takes, after a few days of, of them deceiving the Israelites and the Israelites making a deal with them that they would not harm them and the Gibeonites would become their servants. After three days, Joshua says, why did you deceive us? Well, they made a, Joshua had already made a commitment that he could not violate. And so now the Gibeonites are involved here. And so some changes have happened. And we see that, that what's going on here, when the Gibeonites made this treaty we pick it up at the latter part of verse one it says the people of Gibeon have made a treaty of peace with Israel and have become their allies he and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city when you make changes when God brings about a change in your life a change in the way you view life the first thing you need to expect is this you need to expect resistance you just need to expect it. It's not a matter of if resistance will happen. It is a matter of when it will happen. Up to this particular point in Israel's history, all that they've experienced since leaving Egypt is resistance. Pharaoh's army, the crossing of the Red Sea. They spent 40 years walking through the wilderness and they have to deal with all the resistance and the harsh elements, elements that come with that the different peoples that they've conquered along the way. But now something has happened for the very first time in their history since leaving Israel. And it's this, is that a people group decides to join them rather than be conquered by them. Perhaps the Israelites at this time are thinking, wow, things have finally turned in our, fa- in, in our way where we don't have to go into battle all the time, where people are going to join us. It's the first time that, that this happens. And so you would think there's all types of joyous experiences along the way. 
But these five kings, these five Amorite kings say, wait a second. They used to be part of our team. They used to be part of our group. And now they've changed. All of us here have had different experiences in life where we've made changes. God has led us or, or, or he's directed us in such a way to make some changes. And we expect everybody to get up and applaud all these great changes. But more often than not, there are those that are close to us that say, I don't like the fact that you're different now. And they make life miserable. And that's exactly what's going on here with the, with the Amorites. The Amorite kings are not happy at all. They're not happy at all with this. And I've seen it happen more and more when, when, when a person comes to know Christ and all of a sudden they have to leave, they, they, they're following after Jesus and great things are happening. Their old friends are, are not very happy about it. And, I, and people have said, why is that? Part of my, this is just my theory. I don't, know if it's, I don't know if it'll hold water or not. I think it will. But I think part of the reason why people are resistant to the change that's happening perhaps in, in, perhaps in your life or a friend of yours' lives who, who, who's come to know Christ, I think part of the resistance is this, is that the Holy Spirit is now on the move and people don't like to feel uncomfortable. Because all of a sudden they're taking a look at their life saying, wait a second, we used to go do all these different things together. Now all of a sudden you're saying, you know, going out and getting drunk or doing drugs is not a healthy way to live. Right, it's not. Because Christ has set me free. And we rejoice in that freedom. We want that freedom. But when we are set free, other people realize that they are not. And that's an uncomfortable place to be. So these Amorite kings rise up. And I want to invite you real quickly just to, just to even illustrate what I'm talking about. Flip a number, uh, quite a few pages to the right. Go to John chapter 9. And we're going to read this event that happens, or a portion of this event that happens to somebody that was born blind. And notice what happens here. We're going to pick it up. We're going to pick it up in... In verse, we'll go to verse 6. So this man is born blind. Jesus comes up to him. Jesus spits on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Notice verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know. So here's what they did. They brought the man to the Pharisees. They brought the man to the Pharisees. We're going to stop there. The Pharisees proceed to grill this guy. Here's a person who was hours prior blind. He had never seen anything in his entire life. He encounters Jesus Christ. And now all of a sudden he can see. You would think everybody would say, this is awesome. This is fantastic. 
We're so glad you can see. He hits resistance immediately. Why is it that when Jesus Christ is doing great work in people's lives, why at times are we guilty of being some of the very first people to resist this move? Why is it that instead of rejoicing in the changes that are happening, why is it that we say, well, we'll see if it sticks this time? This man was blind. Now he can see. So we pick it up. And this, I love this encounter. Verse 24 of John 9. Of John 9. A second time. This is the second time. They, the Pharisees, summoned the man who had, been, who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. <laughs> Verse 25. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And here's the line. Do you want to become his disciples too? Resistance. Change has happened. Resistance happens. And now this blind man says, do you want to be part of the team too? And of course, then they cast him out. They get rid of him. Jesus meets up with him and restores and, and, and takes care of him. He speaks into his life. But the reality is this. Whatever's going on in our lives, when, res- when, when change happens, and it happens for the Gibeonites. We're back in Joshua 10 now. We're back with them. When the change happens and they join with the Israelites. Now granted they have committed they have, they've made a commitment that they will be Israelite servants, but they're now part of that team. When that happened, resistance happens. When we're in the battle, we need to expect resistance. It's sort of what the battle's all about. But we can also expect something else. We pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 10. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, do not, do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. Keep in mind, the Gibeonites were somewhat the big dog on campus. They were the big man on campus. They were the powerful ones out of all this group of Amorites. They were the ones that could fight better than the other people. They were the ones that, that, that the rest of them banked on saying, you're going to take care of us. Well, now they're out. And how scared are they? They're so scared that they cry out to this fledgling group known as the Israelites saying, we need your help. You can expect resistance in the battle. And then you can also expect this, though, in the middle of the battle. You can expect assistance people coming alongside so they cry out and we pick it up in verse 7 they cry out and say do not abandon us verse 7 so joshua marched up from gilgal with his entire army including all the best fighting men yahweh said to joshua do not be afraid of them the gibeonites in essence say israel we have a problem and now israel responds he responds they respond But notice who shows up in verse 8. God himself. 
And as Joshua gets ready to take the troops up onto this journey, God shows up and he says, don't be afraid. This is a constant theme throughout Joshua's book, this issue of fear. You heard Gabe talk about it just a little while ago. When fear begins to run rampant, it paralyzes us. It stops us from thinking clearly. We've talked about this over the past few weeks as we've been walking through Joshua. But one of the things that also strikes me is this, is that, is that God says, don't be afraid. And this is the first time we, he, Joshua's heard these words in quite a while. So perhaps in the midst of doing all that they're doing, he was weary and he needed that voice of encouragement. He needed that reminder that God was with him because following the Lord is always a team effort. There is no such thing as a solo effort. It is always a team effort. The Gibeonites are freaked out. The Gibeonites are wondering what's going on. The Gibeonites are, 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 are concerned about what are we going to do? How are we going to make this happen? It's a team effort. They cry out. They respond. And not only do they respond, God also responds. Do not be afraid of them. I've given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. We have a God who is about participation, not observation. We have a God that participates with us as we go through life. He does not stay far off. He does not stay away from the situation. He enters into the situation with us. And when he comes alongside us, when we receive his assistance, look out because things are going to happen. And that's exactly what happens here. Verse 9, after an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. I've said this before, and I, and I said this a few weeks ago. Anytime that we're given little details in a story, those little details are, are tipping us off to something important going on here. Joshua, Joshua could have waited till morning and made the march. This was a 25-mile march over treacherous mountainous terrain. But here's what he does. He goes knowing that God is assisting him and he's able to take his troops. And this is remarkable what happens here. They march through the night. Normally, this type of a journey with, with all these, with all these um, army people and the equipment and things like that, normally this type of a journey just to go 25 miles would take three days. Joshua motivated the troops to say, we got to get going because God's on our side and they get after it. Joshua is all set doing what he was doing, and now all of a sudden, he has to schedule an interruption. And that's what happens here. They march through the night. Notice what happens at the end of verse 10. Joshua took them by surprise. As we go through life, there are going to be times when things really make sense, that we can that A goes to B goes to C goes to D. But there are other times, in this instance here, where things happen that take us by surprise. And when that happens, we need to say, Lord, help us through this. So Joshua takes them by surprise. We pick it up in verse 10. Yahweh threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them 
completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Bet Aran and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. You can expect resistance. You can expect assistance. And then in the midst of the battle, you need to expect resilience. Because the battle does not end. Joshua's men, think about this. Joshua's men have been marching all night through mountainous territory in the dark. It wasn't like they had flashlights or they had... Picked, they took out their smartphone and put on the on the on the flashlight, you know, thing. Sorry, that didn't sound so technical after all. It really worked in my mind until I started speaking. It was like, be quiet, just go on. But we have to be resilient. And I love the definition of resiliency: the ability to recover readily from illness, depression, adversity, or the like. And I love this last part: buoyancy. Able to keep afloat. Able to hang in there. That's what resiliency is. And so Joshua and his troops have marched all night. And you would imagine they get there in the morning and, and, and they're thinking, boy, that was quite a haul. Can we catch our breath? According to what happens, they immediately go into it. There are times when we're in the battle when we are exhausted. And it's at those very times when God says, I'm glad you're tired. Let's get going. Because you're going to focus more on me than on what you can do. And as we see throughout the Old Testament, every single time the Israelites leaned on themselves, what happens? They lose, yeah, whoever said oops, that's exactly right. The big oops happens. But when they lean on God and admit that they are weak and they can't do it, all of a sudden they are ama- they're amazed at what, what can happen. Some of you are in this room right now and you're exhausted. You're tired. You don't know how much more of life you can take. I'm here to tell you at, it's at this very time when God is saying to you, I'm here. Turn to me. And I'm going to keep you going. Because there's more to do. So they keep going. And they engage in this battle. And I love what happens here. Verse 10. Yahweh threw them, the Amorite kings, into confusion. Into confusion. Confusion always leads to chaos. The Israelites come alongside and they're going to they're going to come alongside the Gibeonites but the Gibeonites are in trouble and the Israelites are this fledgling group and now all of a sudden confusion erupts on the Amorite side and these great kings all of a sudden don't know what to do a number of weeks ago when Adam was talking about the game plan this this one purpose of go and make disciples he shared this example when he was serving in the marines and he said, he said, we had all these different plans going on. And so one time he came up to his sergeant and said, how can we have all these different plans going on and we never do any of them? And then Adam's sergeant looked at him and said, said, Adam, if we don't know what we're doing, the enemy certainly won't know what we're doing. Remember that? So confusion erupts. Confusion erupts. The Amorites don't know what to do. 
and now they're in trouble. They take off, and we're told that that the Israelites struck them down, and we pick it up in verse 11. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Bet-Haran to Ezekiah, Yahweh hurled large hailstones down on them. Some of you are going, wait a second. How did the Israelites not get hit by these hailstones, and yet the Amorites did? First off, not quite sure. But what we do know is this, is that the Israelites maintained the high ground. And those of us that went to Israel a number of months ago, the high ground is priceless. And so as they're, as they're on the high ground, the Amorites are on this valley that is loaded. Of course, all of Israel is loaded with rocks. And God in his divine power pulls off this amazing miracle. And so they get hit by these hailstones. And one of the things that, first off, you need to know this about hailstones, it's going to hurt when it hits you. Okay? Anybody ever been caught in a hailstorm? It's not exactly fun, right? I mean, you don't sit there going, man, I, I wish I could be hit more. Okay? But Don's car, Don and I have been married about a year, and a hailstorm flew through, uh, came through Wichita, and it was on, believe it or not, it was on a Friday. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was on a Friday. That morning I was playing golf, and this huge storm built up. And the guys I was playing with are going, we need to get out of the way. And I said, not right now, because the wind is with us on this hole. Let's just let it go. Thankfully, calmer, calmer minds prevailed, and we got off the course. This hail, this hail came down at the golf course where I was at. was pretty bad. But our house was the epicenter of this hailstorm. Don's car was completely destroyed. I got home about four hours later, and because there was all types of chaos going on in Wichita at that time, I got home about four hours later, and I was helping in a variety of things get home. I go and look in Don's car, and it's, it's just, it's gone. This is four hours later, and I picked up a hailstone. You're going to see this on the screen. This isn't my hand, but this gives you a size of what's going on. About that big. Don was, Don's car was trashed. It looked like it had been through just, it was, it was, it was obliterated. But throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, hailstones are an instrument of judgment in God's hands. I'm going to put, I put up a couple of references for you to, to, to take a look at if you'd like. But when hail is involved, there is judgment. And God is pouring out judgment on the Amorites. And we're told this, that it was so immense and so intense that more died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Verse 12, on the day, Yahweh gave the, on that day, Yahweh gave the Amorites over to Israel. Joshua said to Yahweh in the presence of Israel, sun stand still over Gibeon and you moon over the valley of Ihalon. So the sun stood still, the moon stopped till the nations avenged itself on its enemy. They were able to keep going. Joshua knows that if, that if it goes dark, if things go dark, they're possibly going to lose the advantage. But here's another little tidbit that is important here. Remember, Joshua is following in Moses' footsteps. 
when Moses confronts the Pharaoh, there were ten plagues. Each one of those ten plagues dealt with, and yes, there were gnats and locusts and, and things like that, but each one of those plagues dealt with this. It confronted one of the Egyptian gods. And in essence, what Moses is saying is, our God is greater than that. Why do I bring that up? Here's why I bring it up. Joshua cries out, Lord, hold off. Hold off putting the sun down. By the way, this is biblical evidence for daylight savings time. Okay? So, hold off. The sun stops. The moon stops. Here's why this is important. The Amorites bowed down to the sun and the moon, believing that they were all powerful. And Joshua turns to God and says, you're more powerful than that. Stop them. And what happens? They stop. Remember, things are in Scripture to point us to a bigger picture. So Joshua says, sun stop, moon stop, and they stop. And here's what happens, and this is why this is important. Our resiliency is not something that we create. It's something that God gives us. Some of you right now need resiliency. You need to be reminded of three things. First off, the Lord listens. He hears you. The second thing is this, the Lord responds. He won't let you down. He doesn't get tired. And thirdly, the Lord never tires. I just said that. He listens, he responds, he never gets tired. That's why we can have resiliency. That's why in the midst of us being being tired and worn out, we we can keep going. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like it before or since, a day when Yahweh listened to a human being. Surely, and I love this last line, Surely Yahweh was fighting for Israel. Remember, we have a God who's in participation, not in observation. He participates with us. He gets involved with us. The psalmist writes these words in Psalm 24, and you often wonder if perhaps he was looking back, David was looking back at at all of Israel's experiences, and he says this, If Yahweh had not been on our side, let Israel say, if Yahweh had not been on our side, when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive when their anger flared against us. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to Yahweh, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped Our help is in the name of Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. The battle is bigger than what we realize. The battle is so big that so often we forget what's going on beyond what we can see. You don't hear me talk much about this. But I want us to understand this morning that in the battle, there are three particular entities that we're battling. One, and it's the biggest one, we battle ourselves. 
We are our own worst enemy. We battle ourselves more than anything else. The second one is this. We battle the world. The world doesn't want Christ promoted. You heard Gabe talk earlier about what's going on in China. And the third one is this. We battle Satan. He's involved. I want to give you some battle advice. And I want to to encourage you right now to go to Ephesians chapter 6. Battle advice is this. Don't fight naked. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up, the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it it fearlessly as I should. Don't fight naked. Allow Jesus Christ to clothe you so that as you go into battle, you are able to experience and expect the resiliency that only He can give to keep moving forward, to keep proclaiming that He is your Lord, to keep making an impact in this world. Don't fight naked thinking that you can do this on your own. Fight with Him clothing you and taking care of you and equipping you for the battle that's every single day in your life. In this battle, we need help. And that help is Jesus Christ. The one who provides the resiliency to keep going because he's the one that understands fully every little thing that we experience in life. He gives us strength. He gives us hope. And He gives us what we need to keep going. It's my hope, it's my prayer that we never forget that. And for those of you that are here this morning that don't know Him, it's my prayer that today would be the day that you say, I need Him now. Father, we pray as we get ready to come into this time of celebrating and remembering what You've done for us. 
we would ask that we would keep in mind that you, Lord Jesus Christ, are the great warrior, that you are the one who's done more than we could ever ask or imagine, and that because of you battling, because of you battling, we can have freedom, and that we can enjoy you, and that we can be resilient no matter what comes our way. Lord, many of us in this room are weak, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would equip us and remind us to keep moving forward, trusting in you as we battle, knowing that you're there to assist us, you're there to provide the resiliency that we desperately need. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we come to this time now where we remember what Jesus Christ did for us. He was, he was betrayed, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was crucified. And we know this, that he did rise from the dead. But before he, before he experienced all of that, he had a meal with all the, all the apostles. And as they had this meal, he said, this meal isn't some just simple meal. This is a meal where we remember what I'm about to do. So he broke bread and he said, this represents my body, which will be broken for you. And then he poured out wine into a cup and he said, this represents my blood, my blood that will be shed for you. Every time you get together, remember me. So we're going to sing the doxology now. And as we sing this song, as we sing this doxology, may we prepare ourselves, may we remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. So as we take these elements, we invite anyone who professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to participate in this. If you don't profess Christ as Lord and Savior, we invite you to reflect on what you heard this morning and reflect on the fact that Jesus Christ came to do what he did. And perhaps today's that day where you say, I'm placing my trust in him. So I invite the elders to join me as we share this. <laughs> 